Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 4 in your Bible. Acts chapter 4. I know in years past when we have come to a day when we think about Palm Sunday, we've gone to the passages in the Gospels that emphasize that and certainly record those uh, hours where Jesus came into uh, Jerusalem on the donkey and all the circumstances surrounding it. And uh, as I was thinking about the text that we had been in in Acts chapter 4 and the circumstances, I really thought the same truth about Christ and his being the Messiah, being the Son of God, is, is reflected in the prayer of God's people at the end of the chapter. So though it does not have the palms and the victory and the crowds as there was on that day, there is in the prayer of his disciples and the apostles a consciousness of the royalty of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, and they're trusting in him in a very real circumstance which they've been put in because of their witness for him. And so though this is past Jesus' earthly ministry, the Lord is in heaven now, but what is on their consciousness as they pray in the midst of persecution, as they have been threatened by the authorities? And we'll consider some of the circumstances leading to the prayer, which we've been going through on Sunday mornings here in the book of Acts. But look at verse 23, So we came to the conclusion of that trial and the release of the apostles. Verse 23 says, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal. And signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And this is God's word. And thanks be to God for his word of instruction, this word certainly that tells us of who Christ is, certainly the gospel from the Old Testament as to the identity of Christ as King and Messiah. The church has faced persecution here in their leaders. There's more persecution coming in the book of Acts. Jesus had told them 
that they would be persecuted. He told them that they would have to stand before rulers and governors for his namesake. What they're experiencing in this chapter is nothing but what he told them would happen, and he has given them strength to go through it and to be a witness. Puritan Thomas Watson said, persecution is the legacy bequeathed by Christ to his people. In this world, if we stand for Christ, if we preach the gospel, we should expect, not always on this level, but sometimes on this level and beyond to the point of martyrdom, there will be persecution. Watson went on to say, to have two heavens is more than Christ had. Was the head crowned with thorns? And do we think to be crowned with roses? Living the Christian life is not easy if you truly do live the Christian life and speak for Christ. You preach the gospel, it will come. And I think the songwriter reminds us as well of that when he says, am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. The image that you could see throughout history is a suffering church, a persecuted church. As they lived godly in Christ Jesus, as they spoke for Christ, persecution came. And in this chapter, persecution has come. It came actually after a good work that was done. The circumstances that lead to this prayer are found in the previous two chapters where a man who was lame, he had never walked in his life, and based on the details we learn, he was over 40. Verse 22 in this chapter tells us that. Peter and John, as they're walking into the temple, the man is expecting to receive some money, and Peter doesn't have any, but he says in the name of silver and gold have I none, but what I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And he does. And not only does he walk, he starts leaping and jumping all over the temple, drawing attention, not only to the healing that God had given him, but then as he holds on to these apostles, he draws attention to them. And in God's providence, then Peter and John have the opportunity to testify. And Peter, especially his sermon in chapter 3, is filled with the gospel message and who Jesus is, who he truly is as the risen Messiah, the risen Messiah. That was part of the problem, that they were preaching the resurrection through Jesus. Both Jesus and the resurrection were a problem for the Sadducees and the priests, and so they had them arrested, and then they tried them after a night in prison. And as they tried them, it was the same message. And even though there are threats given to Peter and John not to speak or teach at all, verse 18, in the name of Jesus, Peter and John's response is a commitment, a resolution that they're not going to stop because they have a higher authority than the ones that are speaking to them. And don't forget, the ones that they're speaking to are named in chapter 4. They are Ananias excuse me, Annas rather, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, the high priestly family, and even the ones who were involved in the very crucifixion of Christ. But they are boldly declaring their purpose to continue, continue preaching, knowing full well that this is the same group of people who had their Lord 
crucified. How does someone who has feared even to tell someone, a little servant girl in the dark, come to the place where he's able to preach so boldly? And we can't miss, as Peter is preaching, the emphasis at the beginning that the reason he is, is he's filled with the Spirit of God. God is giving him the power to proclaim boldly the gospel message. And there's a very obvious fact that cannot be denied, and that is that this man who was lame has been healed. In fact, he probably spent the night in jail with them. He's there that day with them, and he's standing with them, and he is part of the evidence. Maybe they didn't put him in jail. It seems as though because he's there and in the circumstances, he may have been. But they can't deny that. All they can do is acknowledge it, but then because they don't want to hear the name Jesus, they don't want to hear the doctrine of the resurrection, they threaten Peter and John. And then they have to let them go. And so they're released. And it's interesting to see the ways in which they are released from prison, uh, whether Peter and John or the apostles or later on Paul and Silas. Sometimes it's the work of the government. And sometimes it's some other circumstance. Sometimes it's an angel. Sometimes it's a, it's a circumstance that after it develops the earthquake and later in Acts that leads to the release of Paul and Silas. There's all sorts of ways that God gets his servants out of prison, but they were in prison for a reason, to be able to have this opportunity to preach the gospel. And now verse 23, as we pick up in the circumstances leading to this prayer of the church, they're released. And the first thing they do is they go and tell, notice what it says in verse 23, it says they went to their own, and the word is, uh, in the New American Standard, is companions. Uh, that, that, in the context of the book of Acts to this point, could just give the idea of the other apostles, because they certainly were accompanying with the other apostles. There also is the possibility that it's just the church, the people who had believed, who had had gathered with them before and knew them, knew, of course, they were in prison, knew they were on trial. I tend to take it that way, that it's that larger group of disciples that they're reporting to. Uh, we're not given all of the details of that. There's a prayer meeting that takes place. And verse 32, it speaks of the congregation of those who believed who are one heart and one soul. But we're talking about the Christian community that became aware, and I would say it's the church, that became aware of what specifically happened in that trial with the apostles. And this news not only that they had been released, but also that threats had been given should they speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And these are their leaders. And the threat, again, coming from the same people who had crucified Jesus or delivered him over to the Roman authorities to crucify him. These are men in power. And what would you do with such a threat? What would our temptation be? Our temptation would be to do what Jesus told them not to do 
and that would be to fear those who are able to kill the body, right? And they know they have the power to imprison, so the fear of being put in prison because of speaking in the name of Jesus, they're coming to a community of people who had believed in Jesus, and now the threat to these people, in addition to their leaders, they're not to talk about Jesus anymore. They're not to speak about him. They're not to teach. And these are people in authority. This is, this is the law of the land, so to speak. But what they did is what we always should do when something concerns us, whether it's great or small, something that becomes a care to our heart. What are we supposed to do with our cares? What are we supposed to do with those things that cause us anxiety? We're to cast those things on the Lord. We are to be careful for nothing because he cares for us and he hears our prayers. Is that how you respond to news that frightens you? Is that how you respond to difficult things that come into your ears or an awareness, even in this case, would have been a very threatening influence that was very present there at Jerusalem for these people? What would you do? if you had gotten this news. And I think what we see here is commendable because immediately, verse 24, they lift their voices to God. Their voice to God, they pray. We have this example in many other passages of Scripture as you read through the Bible. You can see that when people are facing something that seems to be a force, in the case of armies in the Old Testament, or something that they would fear they turn to God. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but Jehoshaphat heard of a great multitude that was coming toward Israel, and he was afraid of the power of this army. And so what did he do? He prayed. He went to the Lord with those concerns, and you might have something this morning that you're dealing with. Disappointing, frightening. In this case, it was actual threats. I hope it's not that, but I hope that if you were ever to face something that was fearful, that you would trust in God who is greater than whatever your fear is, that you would turn to him in prayer, that when dire circumstances come to you, that you would depend on God in prayer. Do you tell it to Jesus? Octavius Winslow pastor in the 19th century had a work that is called, it's called a couple different things, depending on what publisher, tell Jesus everything or go and tell Jesus. He says, what more shall we say? We will sum it up all in a few words. Go and tell Jesus everything. You have much to disclose. Tell him all. Tell him of the world's woundings, of the saints' smitings, of the spirit's tremblings, of the heart's anguish. Tell him your low frames, your mental despondencies, your gloomy fears, your beclouded evidences, and your veiled hope. Tell him your bodily infirmities, your waning health, failing vigor, progressive disease, the pain, the nervousness, the weary couch, the sleepless pillow, which no one knows but him. Tell him of your dread of death, how you recoil from dying, and how dark and rayless appears the body's last resting place. Tell him how all beyond it looks so dreary, starless, hopeless. If that's your thought about it, that's 
the comfort and encouragement that we have is that we have one who knows us and who knows everything about us and calls us to come and tell him, to cast our cares on him, and certainly to make our petitions known with thanksgiving. Do you pray when those kinds of things come or those things are a part of your life? Winslow goes on to say, tell him you fear you do not know him. Love him, believe in him. Tell him that there's not a being in the universe, none in heaven or on earth, whom you desire as himself. Tell him all the temptations, the difficulties, the hidden trials and sorrows of your path. Tell, oh, tell him all. There is nothing you, that you may not want in the confidence of love and in the simplicity of faith. Tell Jesus. And then he quotes, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. You people pour out your heart before him. There's certainly many other things, but when you come into the place where you're being persecuted by government authorities who have the power to take your life or put you in prison, tell Jesus. Tell Jesus. And it's not just telling him that, of course he knows, but it's telling him that shows that you're dependent upon him and his power and his authority to bring about his will in the circumstance. Because he certainly has a will whenever we face those kinds of things. He did here. What was his command to them? To be witnesses. What was his expectation? That they would do that. Even if they should come, and he had told them they would face tribulation. He told them they'd face trouble. He told them in the midst of that, they would have the Holy Spirit for their help. And so they come, and as verse 24 says, when they heard this, this is the report that is being given to them, to the group that is praying. Now, I know Peter and John were a part of the prayer, but when they heard this, they, Who's praying? It's Peter and John are there, but it's the church's response to what they hear, the report of the persecution that's come. And what are they doing? They're resting in and trusting in God in a unified way. As they pray, you can tell that they know the scriptures. As they pray, you can tell they are thinking about Christ and the significance of who he is. Historically, theologically, throughout the prayer, you can see how they understand Jesus and all of his royal authority and deity. This is a unified prayer. Verse 24 says, when they heard this, they lifted their voice. It says voices there, but I believe it's the singular. They're lifting their voice together collectively to God. It says with one accord. There is nobody who is outside of this and has a different purpose. They all recognize that now they need to speak to God. And the church has been here before in prayer, anticipating the coming of the Spirit. But now it's the threat to their witness and the threat to their lives. And here's the church again together in prayer. That's what a church looks like, ought to look like. The church together in prayer. Certainly, we gather and we pray together. We pray together on the Lord's Day. We pray together in our services. 
We have a prayer meeting where I hope it is your desire and pursuit if you can be there to pray together. But even those opportunities are select opportunities through the week. But I hope that as a church, we're growing to the point where we take time to pray together when we spend time together. And that life of prayer is the life of our church. It's what a church does in good times and in bad, in times of, you might say, ease where there's no persecution, but also times when there's persecution. And sometimes you do wonder what it will take and what it does take for people to get together to actually come and pray. I hope that you'll be motivated not by the circumstance that is on this level, but just in the simple invitation of God and the expectation that prayer ought to be part of the life of the church. So they're lifting their voice to God with one accord. They're united. And as they pray, as they address God, as they praise God, as they describe their circumstances, as they make their petitions to God, there's certainly a theme that runs throughout this prayer. And I think you could see it in the first words. The address to God. You might have in the margin next to that word Lord, that it's the word master. This is not the same word that we find translated Lord in other places. We find the word kurios, which does mean Lord. This is the word we get our word despot from. And so the very first word that is used here is an emphasis on the authority of the one that they're praying to. A despot, if you study that Greek word, exercises, someone said, unrestricted power and domination. And the Greeks, this writer said, used the title of despot only for the gods. I think it has a broader use than that, as people use the Greek language, but that was one analysis of it, because it is used of a person with their servants. A man who had servants was a despot in relation to his slaves. He had the authority to tell them what to do, but he wasn't the same. He didn't have the same kind of authority in relation even to those in his own household, although we would say certainly there's an authority that God gives to a person over his household. And if you study the word, it's used a couple other times in Scripture. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but Simeon uses this word as he sees Christ and holds him in his arms after he's born. And he says, O oh Lord, now you are releasing your servant to depart in peace. Simeon, as he addresses him as despot, is acknowledging that the one he is addressing has the power over life and death. This is the one who has the authority as to when a person goes out into eternity or someone comes into the world. That's what Simeon's words there indicate. He's also the one, according to Revelation chapter 6, who is the one who judges and avenges blood. Revelation 6, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, John says, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, and because of the testimony which they had maintained, they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O despot, holy and true. O Lord is how it's translated. 
will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell in the earth? And there's assurance that there would be that vengeance that would come, but who pours out that vengeance? None but God. He has the authority over life and death. He has the authority to bring vengeance. That only belongs to God. And so as the disciples here, as the church begins their prayer, they're addressing that same authority that they acknowledged to be the authority over any of these rulers that they had just been threatened by. You see, they have a throne above any earthly throne. They have an authority over any earthly authority. They have a higher authority to appeal to. In fact, not only is that title given, but they emphasize his authority in terms of his creation as well. As they begin to praise him, they address him first as despot or Lord. And then it says, and it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea. And then they say, and all that is in them. Their praise to God, in addition to their address to God, is asserting his sovereign position over everything. And this doesn't this make these rulers who had threatened them so small? I was talking with my daughter this last week, and she was saying, I read through Isaiah 40, and... Isaiah 40 talks about the nations being a drop in the bucket. And based on what we were talking about, it's a different circumstance and a lot less than a nation full of people. And I said, yeah, and that situation we're talking about is a driplet. It's not even a drop, if that's a thing. It, it magnifies the greatness of God properly to see him not only as the one who holds absolute authority, but to show the realms of his authority. Where does God hold authority? Everything. The whole universe. The heavens above. You look out, and I had an opportunity to look out at some of the planets, the stars, the constellations, the moon this week, and it's just vast Millions and millions and millions of miles. And the one who rules over all that space, and as the globe turns, all the space around this world to what we can't even explore with our technology. To the galaxies filled with billions and billions of stars. This is the one who made those heavens and made everything in those heavens. And whether it's the stars, the galaxies, or the creatures, or whatever they may be in the heavenlies. And I say creatures, I'm talking about angels. This is the one who is Lord of heaven. And he is Lord of earth. He made the earth and the sea, and he divides those two. And you think about the earth and all the continents and all the islands, and that's quite a bit just to think about God's sovereignty over all of those things and the nations that are on them. But then you go below the surface in the sea, and you recognize all of those many creatures that God has made that are a testimony to his creativity, to his wisdom, to his power, See, what is going to make these earthly rulers small is to think about how big God is. 
The way to fear God is to recognize how great he is in contrast with these small little rulers on the earth. And I believe that praise to the Lord as they rejoice in the Lord who made as creator the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. That itself would bolster their confidence in God. But they go on to assert not only his sovereignty in those realms, on the earth, the sea, the heavens, but he's also sovereign over history. Verse 25, as they quote from this Old Testament passage, the psalm, it says, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, and they begin quoting from Psalm 2. If you want to keep your finger here, let's go back to Psalm 2. There's only a portion of it quoted here. But if you turn back to Psalm 2, this is one of those times in Scripture where comparing passage with passage, you can learn some things. One of which is the author of the psalm. Because as they said it there, we know Scripture is inspired, breathed out by God. They said David wrote this. Doesn't say that at the beginning here, but we know now through inspired Scripture, David is the author of this. And David, as he speaks, prophetically speaks about a rebellion that is taking place that is worldwide, it involves all the nations and the rulers of the world against God. That's the indication from verses 1 and 2. And what is quoted there in the book of Acts, look at verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing or a futile thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his, and what's the word there? His anointed, his Messiah, Greek word, his Christ. So this is a rebellion that's worldwide against the Lord, Yahweh, and his Messiah, saying, verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That's their intent to break off the shackles of God's authority to remove that accountability that they have from him or to him? And how does God respond to that? And I compare this to memories, perhaps, of my little brother saying, I'm going to beat you up, right? He, he's threatening me in his way of he's angry, something happened, and he's mad, and his threat is, I'm going to beat you up. And here's this little guy who's 10 years younger than me. He's not going to beat me up. What's he going to do? Well, the Lord, look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. If the nations are a drop in the bucket, Isaiah 40, then what are the rulers of the nations? How could they in any way threaten the Almighty? If heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool, how can some infinitely almost small people on the earth threaten him at all? They can't. And that's why it's such a ridiculous thought. That's why there's laughing. But it's not just 
laughing in scorn. It's also anger that they would rebel against his mighty power and authority and deity as God. And so his anger is stirred. Verse 5, it says, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And I think it's helpful to understand the words there, my king, as the, the indicating his choice of king. This is not God's king. This is his choice of king, which would be the Messiah, to rule over the world. And though the rebellion against him is maybe strong, involving all the rulers and all the nations, they're not going to overthrow the purpose and the will of the Almighty. And so David goes on to say, and I believe these are the words of Christ, if we're thinking about interpreting this psalm, because these are addressed to him. He says, I will surely uh, tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So this same group of people that is rebelling against God and rebelling against his Messiah, not only is he going to rule over them by uh, his Christ, his king, but he's also going to give all those nations to his son to rule over them. Verse 10, in light of that teaching and truth, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, obviously, the focus in verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 6 is the one who installs his king, the Messiah. But then the Messiah himself is speaking, and he's speaking in terms of him being the Son of God. But the Son of God is also the Messiah. So when you see that word Son in Scripture, there are times where it, it not only indicates the deity of Christ, but it has those overtones of royalty, that he's king. And Messiah, of course, emphasizes, although there's more than just his being king with that term Messiah, this certainly does have to do with his kingship. So why is he warning the kings of the earth to, to do homage? Because this is their king. This is their king. This is their authority. Turn, if you would, back to Acts chapter 4. Wanted to, you to see the context because as they quote this psalm, and even as it's translated here into English, we see that it's referring to Christ, the anointed one. Verse 25, middle of the verse, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? Things that would never truly come to pass because it was fighting against God and his, his king. Verse 26, the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. What David spoke of as future, the rebellion of the world against God, against his Messiah, was realized in time in the Gospels. 
It's realized in time. And the, the, the prayer here is going to indicate that. Don't forget that we're studying the prayer of the early church, but it's also inspired scripture. So we know God is fulfilling his purpose that he declared a thousand years before in the mouth of David through the life of Christ. And now the church recognizes. Of course, they recognized he was the Messiah. Peter confessed that he was the Messiah before this, but now this passage along, I'm sure with others, they're starting to see the significance of what had been prophesied. They're starting to put things together that perhaps they'd not put together before when their understanding had not been opened. But their argument in this prayer is that that text of Scripture needs to be, and it properly is, applied to Jesus. Look at verse 27. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Remember the word anointed refers to the Messiah. The anointed one. Christ means the anointed one. And who's doing the anointing? It's God the Father, whom they're praying to. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Have you seen that term servant before? If you've been going through the book of Acts to this point, where have we seen that? And what does it apply to? Remember, we saw it in Peter's sermon as he drew attention to who Jesus is as the servant of the Lord. That's the word that's used in the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, to translate that word. It's the suffering servant of the Lord. So the suffering servant of the Lord is also the Messiah, is also the Son. He's taking Psalm 2 and Isaiah 53 and the other servant songs, and he's putting them together, knitting them together in a way that you realize the king is also a servant. The king is also the suffering servant. And he had to suffer. But it's that suffering that was a path to his, certainly his being glorified and sitting upon the throne. Notice in verse 27, as they continue to apply in the historical situation, the details of what happened to Christ and that psalm. Look at verse 27, middle of the verse. Well, let's start at the beginning again. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Herod is the king of the Jews, at least the figurehead king. He's the Edomite who was king during this time. Pontius Pilate, remember, recognized that as he turned Jesus over to Herod for a little bit of time for Herod to question him. So Herod was a part of that questioning, part of the mockery that Jesus claimed to be a king. But then it says, and Pontius Pilate. Now, who is Pontius Pilate? He was the Roman procurator, the representative of the emperor over this region where Israel was. And so he was directly responsible to the leadership of Rome. He's under that empire, and the Jews were under the Romans. So what the, 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 as they're praying here, they're making the application that the world authorities, both in terms of the Jews and the Gentiles, a representative of the Roman government, 
are acting against Christ. That's how they're applying the circumstances that happen in the Gospels. And then it says, along with the Gentiles, end of verse 27, and the peoples of Israel. Remember, it's the peoples of Israel, the Jews, who had tried him, who the, the, the common people had cried out in keeping with their leaders, crucify him. But then they turned Jesus over to the Romans. Yes, to Pilate, but then Pilate gave Jesus over the soldiers to scourge him, to mock him, and eventually to crucify him. So who had a hand in the crucifixion of Jesus? Who had a hand in his sufferings? It was all of the peoples. It's the Jews and the Gentiles, representative of all the other nations. Who's responsible for the death the crucifixion of Christ, I think you could say, based on that representation, we are. It's mankind, Jew and Gentile. Everyone's included. And it was a part of our, as a race, the human race, rebellion against God. He sent his son to this world, and we crucified him. And that's what they're acknowledging. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, notice this, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. This isn't out of control. It might have appeared to be from the standpoint of those looking on when Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified. But long before Isaiah had prophesied, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Psalm 22 talks about the piercing of his hands and feet. There was an expectation that one would come who would suffer. The same one who would suffer was suffering according to the foretelling of the prophet, which was God's plan to take care of sin. That suffering that was necessary to appease the wrath of God for human sin as Christ came. And so verse 28 is an indication, isn't it, that God is sovereign over history. He holds man responsible. Even when men sin against God, even in that way to crucify his son, God is not limited by what man does, even in his sinfulness. He controls it. And I'm not saying he's responsible for sin. There's something here that takes us into a mystery. We can't fully understand how God can, he can use human sin to accomplish his purposes, but remain unconnected with it and so unsullied, but still use it to accomplish his purposes. I like the explanation that when he does that, if sin doesn't accomplishes purposes, he actually restrains that. And you can see that in the Old Testament at times where God is restraining people from sinning because it doesn't serve his purposes. Psalm 76 verse 10 says, for the wrath of man shall praise you. And then it says, with a remnant of wrath, you will gird yourself. When God deals with Sinners, as they are sinning against him, he does not ever allow their sin to frustrate his purposes. Even Judas's sin served God's purpose. 
but Judas was responsible for his sin. So again, I say there's some things here that are we'd have to go very deep and seek to understand what Scripture has to say about God, but we know God is holy, holy, holy. We know that he never sins. We know that man does sin, and he's responsible for that. In this case, the church is acknowledging that what has taken place has fulfilled a thousand-year-old prophecy. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over these circumstances. He's sovereign over the world that he's made, sovereign over the heavens where that world is set. He's sovereign in terms of the fact that he's despot. But look at verse 29. So why pray? It's also because he's sovereign in this circumstance. God is not surprised by the threats. God is not surprised by what is taking place. He actually foretold through Jesus to the disciples that they would face this kind of thing. So the petitions of this prayer also testify to God's sovereignty. But look at verse 29. It says, as they begin their petitions, it says, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. See, they recognized there was something that they needed that God had that God would give if they prayed because God is sovereign. He's even sovereign in the boldness that a person has as they proclaim the truth of God. God can work in a person's heart and give them the confidence, even in a circumstance where it appears like they wouldn't have it, to be able to proclaim the truth. That's what they're asking for. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, before they ask for the boldness, they, they ask the Lord to take note of their threats. If you said to a mechanic, would you take a look at my car? You're not asking him just to look at it. You're asking him to look at it and deal with it. So they're not elaborating at all on what, they're, what they want the Lord to do with regard to the threats, with regard to these rulers. If you said to the doctor, I, I have a problem, can you take a look at it? You're not really looking just for him to set his eyes on it. You want some, some action on his part or her part to take care of the problem, whatever it may be. So this request to take note of their threats would be for God to respond in judgment. And how does he respond to threats? How does he respond to oppression? How does he respond to those who bring harm to others by their words or actions? God is fully aware of what is taking place. What did he do with Saul? What has he done with other oppressors over time? God sees that, and he acts, and he takes vengeance. And I think that's one of the things that's happening here is they're not looking to take their own revenge. They're asking God to take revenge for them or to act on their behalf. Now, the wonderful thing is, and we've seen this in our series on the Psalms, is that sometimes when God takes note of the threats or he takes note of the oppression, what does he do? He doesn't pour down judgment. He saves one of those people and changes them from the inside out, like he did with the Apostle Paul, right? Saul is breathing out threats and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord. And what does Jesus do? He meets him on the road to Damascus and changes him. So sometimes God does that. You have to wonder if in part what's taking place in their prayer is there's an anticipation that some of these rulers, that's what's going to happen. But beyond that, look at what their request is. Verse 29, take note of their threats and then grant 
that your bond servants, this is their posture towards the despot back in verse 24. They're recognizing that he is their absolute authority. Take, excuse me, grant that your bond servants may speak your word with all confidence. So they ask God to take notice of the threats, but they all ask him for boldness, all boldness. This isn't just a little bit, but with full confidence to be able to continue to preach and teach God's word and certainly Jesus' name. That's what they're asking for. And could I just make an application? Do you ask for that when you have someone that you're seeking to be a witness to? You realize that's a very biblical prayer and actually a biblical prayer request. As Paul asked in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Pray for my, on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. So he's asking as an apostle, someone who had seen the Lord multiple times, and he's still asking the Ephesian church, pray for me that I would have boldness. And God gave it to Paul as he was in prison and at other times. But I don't think it was native to Paul. It wasn't native to Peter. It's not native to any of us. It's a power that God gives by his Holy Spirit to proclaim who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, certainly the resurrection of Christ and the good news of the gospel, that there's forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. God wants that message known. He's commanded it. And in the hearts of his people who may be timid, he's going to put something in there by his power if you ask for it, and he provides it that will enable you to preach it boldly to people. It's a wonderful thing that God does. It could... Look later in Acts where it says that they spent a long time there boldly speaking or speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, we have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. I, I was uh, interested in the fact that in multiple passages, it's not just the boldness that's mentioned, it's also the source of the boldness that is given right there so that we understand that's where it's coming from. That's where it's coming from. Now, the other thing they're asking as we look at the end of this prayer is for God to testify with them by miracles. Look at verse 30. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This miracle with this man who never walked had done, been done in the name of Jesus, and they were able and able to preach the gospel because God had testified with them and gave them a piece of evidence that no one could deny. And they're asking for the very same thing, that God would do more things just like this so that people would know that they're genuinely speaking from God, that their testimony is God's testimony, but the way that God is testifying is he's bringing miracles to pass through Jesus' name as they do those miracles so that their message would be heard. This, again, certainly evidences the sovereignty of God as he answers their prayer. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4 says, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So you could say that when God is doing this, he is testifying 
excuse me, he is healing people. He is through them casting out demons. He's doing good things for people. And, and if you're someone like this lame man, of course, your life has changed and you're rejoicing. And while it's a wonderful thing to see that happening in the Gospels and the book of Acts, you realize there's a bigger point. Does God care about those individuals? Yes. But there's a bigger point. And it's the message of God. It's the truthfulness of the gospel. And God, by doing those miracles through his people, he's showing his power. He's showing that they're telling the truth. He's bringing a greater understanding of the truthfulness of the message because God is with them. And yes, God does forgive sins, and he does so through Jesus' name. And don't miss that. At the end of verse 30, it says, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. There's that word again, uh, servant, and Peter had preached on, and they came to a full understanding. This is who Jesus is. This is who the world needs to understand that he is. So there's a strong testimony here, isn't there? As they make this prayer that the one that they're praying to is sovereign. He's king. He's, He's God over all, and he's greater than any human authority. Just that meditation, apart from the petitions, is a way to dispel that fear that we might have of any earthly authority who has some kind of power. It's God. But then as they make these petitions, you see what their purpose is. They want the gospel preached according to God's sovereign declaration. This is what you must do. Be my witnesses. Go preach the gospel to all the nations. And what does God do in response? This is one of those prayers in the Bible that has an immediate response. There's an immediate answer. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They had asked that God with signs and wonders would take place through Jesus' name, and immediately there's a shaking. Imagine suddenly you're sitting on the pew where I'm standing up here and things just start to shake after we pray. How is that happening? That's God at work to help his people to see here that he is at work, that his desire is certainly to answer their prayers so that the name of Jesus would be known not only there, but throughout the earth. And notice the answer to their prayer. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's the source of the boldness. And then they began to obey God again by speaking the word of God with boldness. Sometimes God does answer immediately. I want to encourage you to remember that when you're in a conversation with someone who needs the gospel and that's on your heart. You could pray one of those Nehemiah kind of prayers. Lord, give me boldness. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Pray that prayer. Lord, give me boldness. This person is without Christ. They're perishing. They will spend Eternity in a lake of fire without the good news. Lord, give me boldness. This is not native to us. It is a prayer God delights to answer. Give me boldness. Now, beyond just those individual witnessing opportunities, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we started to pray as a church, 
that God would give us boldness to proclaim the gospel to Cuyahoga Falls, where we are, and I know many of you live in other cities or townships too, but that God would give us boldness to proclaim his word. There certainly is a need for it. There are all kinds of people walking around, driving around. They're not spending any time today in the worship of God. They don't know God, and they are perishing, and they are going to be in an eternal lake of fire one day without the good news of the gospel. And could I just say something? Yes, there is an eternal lake of fire where God will cast sinners who do not believe in Jesus Christ. I remember talking to a friend who said when he came to church, and he was not really expecting to be in church that day, but he came to church and he heard that for the first time, that there was an eternal lake of fire that he was going to be in unless he believed in Christ. And that's what opened his eyes to the reality of God and the gospel and his need to have forgiveness for his sins. You see, if you want to avoid that place, there is, there is safety if you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you turn from your sins and you believe on him. That's what Psalm 2 is talking about. There is refuge for all those who trust in him. There's a place of safety in Jesus, but there's not safety in anything else. There's not safety in just coming to sit in a church building. There's not safety in just having some kind of religious ritual. There's not safety in any of that. There's safety in Jesus and in him alone if you put your trust in him. And I would invite you even today to put your trust in him. And if you need to understand more about what I'm talking about, I'd be glad to talk with you. I know our members of our church would be glad to talk with you. But And Lord, give us boldness if we should have that opportunity today with anyone here. Because that boldness is found, the power of the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit there for? Is he there for comfort, to help you? Is he there to give you joy and encouragement? Is he there to help you when you're tempted? Yes, he's there for all those things and more. We could look at the Holy Spirit's influence in the life of a Christian. We would say there are so many blessings, but there's one thing that he's there for, that Jesus and the disciples are seeing, that, 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 that Jesus' disciples are seeing, and that is that he's there to empower them to witness, to give testimony to who Jesus is. May we rely on him and seek him even today for that, if we know him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we put no confidence in the flesh. There is not really anything in us apart from your grace and your goodness and your help that would enable us to do what we know we need to do and are even commanded to do in sharing the gospel. And so we pray that we, like these disciples, would look to you in prayer and seek you for boldness, that we might proclaim the name of Jesus and salvation through his name to those who do not know you. And I do pray for anyone who's here today that they might respond to the message today, the invitation to come to Christ. They would seek myself or another person 
here who they know is a Christian, that they might be pointed to the way of Christ. And I pray for boldness, even for that one who may speak to them today. Or more than one. Lord, we desire you to work however you desire. We do pray for boldness in our community, in our personal lives, as we interact with people at work, in our neighborhoods, wherever we are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.